to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. We are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today, we're going to be talking with Lori Gottlieb, the author of New York Times bestseller, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. But before we get to the interview, which I had to do without Stephanie, Mm. we're going to talk about our own therapy, because that's what Lori Gottlieb is, a therapist, and her book is all about an amalgamation of some of her clients and her own experience in therapy. So um, for all the people who are so excited to get the inside scoop on us, like (laughs) mostly my relatives, (laughs) Uh, I'm actually thinking, in fact, my mother-in-law. How about you, Steph? Who's going to be so most happy? (laughs) I feel like I have to plead the fifth on that one. Oh, okay. All right. Well, so I have this long history of going to a therapist and getting them to talk about themselves. <laughs> I'm really good at it. Like, I'm so good at I, I go in saying what I want to talk about and what I want to work on. And then I proceed to do everything in my power to deflect that conversation <laughs> until at some point I say, and I've said this, I mean, it's been several times where I've said to the therapist, I like you so much. Can we get coffee? <laughs> I don't, I mean, I don't want to pay for this, you know, even though I created the the scenario. Anyway, so recently someone told me about their therapist. They said, oh my God, she's so amazing. And so I've been going to her and she is so amazing. And I told her that I do this. I play this game where I Teflon the conversation and I make it about the therapist. And so she was like stoic that it wasn't going to happen. Mm. And then one day I felt like I broke her and I was a little heartbroken. And Lori Gottlieb talks about it in her book when therapists oh, inf- funny. give their own, when they say me too, or, oh yeah, I, I have that. And how it works for some people, but not for all people. And I was like, oh that, yeah, that doesn't work for me. But I stayed with her because she's fantastic. She should write mm. her own book. How about you, Steph? So I have two thoughts. The first one is, yeah, I remember going to a therapist for the first time in my 20s, maybe. And it had to do with like body image issues. And I remember that, it's funny. I had, as we were saying this, I had this flashback and all of a sudden I pictured her office. So we must, I must've been living in Michigan. And, but then I feel like I, I need therapy for my lack of wanting to go to therapy. Did you follow that one? Yeah, I did. I have, (laughs) yeah, I I grew up in a house where like it was a dirty word and it was, I have a letter. Sue, have you ever heard the story about my kid, my pre-K? I should have pulled it out and read right from it had I realized what we were going to be doing. So I had a lot of fear as a kid, and I was very, very anxious. And my pre-K teacher wrote a letter that I have in my baby book. I actually probably have the letter in my drawer in my room. And she said to my mom, you know, she she's fine, but when she catches my eye, she gets all upset. And, you know, you need to tell her and be firm that she's going to kindergarten next year. And if, you know, if she can't handle that and she has all of this fear, this can result in dun, 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 therapy. It was like whispered therapy. We did not talk about anything growing up. Nothing. Nothing. My husband grew up in a family. They talked about everything. Has that translated to a successful therapist relationship or not? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a really funny thing. And I've said this, you know, I have two kids who therapy is great for, and I have one who does not like it at all. And I can relate to the one who doesn't like it at all. And I always say, listen, I get it because I feel like I am that person where 
And I've used it in recent years. And I have liked it when I've done it. But to get myself to that point, I'm always like, you know what? I'd rather talk to my girlfriends. It's just such a funny thing. And I still would. And I don't know, is that not finding the right therapist? Is that who I am? Is that just having not grown up with the idea of therapy? Like, I don't know. Again, I need therapy about my issues regarding therapy, right? Clearly, I also needed therapy about my issues with therapy. And my son-in-law, who's a psychologist, keeps telling me I have to peel back the layers of this problem of wanting to, like, not talk about it and then feel betrayed when the therapist buys my, my, the thing I'm selling. But anyway, <laughs> let's talk about one of the things that, that Lori has in her book because it really resonated with me. So she has a term called help rejecting complainer. So it means like the kid who comes to you and asks for help and then rejects it. Like you have a complainer kid and they are help rejecting. I feel like all my kids might fall into that category. I have so much experience with getting it wrong. And recently, after hearing from someone like Lori and other people before her that um, there was a way to navigate this, I, I think I am doing much better now. But in the beginning, it started with my oldest daughter hitting middle school, caring about her looks to like that unhealthy way in middle school and coming down in the morning to ask me how she looked. It was just such a setup. It was such a complete setup. So I would be like, you look beautiful. I do not. You know, I mean, there was literally there was it was a lose lose. Like there was no way I was going to get it right. The way I fixed it was I started taking a shower in the morning and I and I <laughs> and I would just be completely unavailable. But it's so good. As it turns out, and Lori's going to talk about it in the interview, like there's really a successful way to handle it, which I mean, we've heard from other people. Which isn't what you just laid out? Well, it was a solution. Yeah, no, I'm not even trying to be funny. I'm saying that honestly. No, that is a solution, but it is kind of ignoring what's going on there, which is, you know, and and you know this question, is there anything I can do to help you? Right? Like we so now now I know that and now I can put myself into that headspace and ask my kid that whoever's coming up and asking for help. But it, and that I'm telling you is transformative. If you can pull it off, it's transformative. But I remember having a pit in my stomach when I heard her coming down the stairs every day because I just <laughs> like you know totally. You know oh my god! That, it, that it's you are lose. You are going to lose. There's no way. Yes, one of the thing I ha one of the things I have learned is you know the head is spinning off, and I'm thinking to myself like, oh boy, I'm pretty sure she just wants to wants to vent. But and I've jumped in and said, okay, wait, are you looking for my help, or are you just trying to, or, or do you just need need me to listen? You just are you just venting? And most of the time, it is venting. But she's also my kid that will say, I'm asking you for help. I don't know what to do here, which is really like. Whoa, like I'm actually still surprised when it comes out. I'm like, oh, so she's pretty clear when she needs it. So she is not a rejector. She is not a rejector, but I think she's not a rejector because I learned early on to use the language that we were taught, which was the like, do you need my help here? Do you know, right? Those things. And it also is a little bit of her personality. I want to jump in and just say, if you're listening now and you're raising kids right now, we actually at Your Teen Mag have so many resources about this. And and Stephanie and I acknowledge that it, that it all changed our parenting. It changed our relationships with our kids. So check it out at yourteenmag.com. And you know what? Here's the other thing, Sue, is there is no way that it would have occurred to me to do that. 
to stop and ask them what they need in that moment? Never. You could have given me a million chances to do that had I not been told, and I would have gotten it wrong a million times. All right. Well, I want to say what a delight it is to read Lori's book and to get to know her. If you haven't read it, it's really, really good. And a few friends that read it before me kept pushing that I should read it. And when I finally read it, I can't stop talking about it. And then I push someone to read it and they can't stop talking about it. So it's definitely worth the read. Up next is my conversation with Lori. And I can't wait to listen to it too. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Hi, today our guest is Lori Gottlieb. Lori Gottlieb is a psychotherapist and author of the New York Times bestseller, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. It's a great book. In addition to her clinical practice, she writes the Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column and contributes regularly to the New York Times and many other publications. She's a sought-after expert in her field, having been featured on the Today Show, Good Morning America, the CBS This Morning, CNN, and NPR's Fresh Air, and Your Teen TV. She's also the co-host of the new iHeartRadio podcast, Dear Therapist, produced by Katie Couric. Thanks so much for joining me, Lori. And I wanted to start by asking you, why did you write this book? You know, I wrote this book because I really wanted to normalize what we go through in our daily lives. I wasn't even supposed to be writing this book. I was supposed to be writing a book, actually. I had written this piece for The Atlantic called How to Land Your Kid in Therapy, Why Our Obsession with Our Kids' Happiness Might Be Dooming Them to Unhappy Adulthoods. That piece spread like wildfire and publishers wanted me to write that book. And I just, I didn't want to write another sort of overparenting book. I felt like I said what I wanted to say in the piece. And what I was more concerned about was what is going on with the parents, right? What is going on with the adults? And they said, oh, you want to write about adult happiness, right? And I didn't want to write about happiness. I wanted to write about the human condition. And I feel like as a therapist, I have this very privileged position of being able to really see the human condition up close every day. And I think that if more people could see that, they would feel so much better about their own lives and learn so much about themselves. Well, it worked because my friends who've read it, we, we talked about it so much, so deeply and so much, and it had a great impact. So thank you for that. I'm glad the other book didn't work out. <laughs> well, glad to hear. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to reference a few things from the book and ask you to identify how they impact parenting teenagers. We talk to parents of teenagers and the problems are universal, but we're going to focus on what can parents do about how it impacts their teenagers. You discuss that most of our issues fall loosely into one of two themes, freedom 
like feeling trapped and change, which involves loss. So at this moment, it's particularly poignant to think about feeling trapped and having loss. How do we help our teenagers learn to navigate these two inevitable life themes? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think that what we're doing now can be applied to, you know, when we start to emerge from this. I think so much of what happens when kids come to us with difficulty that they're having around change or fears or uncertainty, whatever might be going on right now, is that we try to make them feel better, right? So we get uncomfortable um, with their discomfort. And so our kid will come to us and say something like, I'm really upset that I can't see my friends right now because we're doing remote school. And, you know, we sort of try to cheer them up or we say, oh, but it'll get better soon or whatever we do. And what they really want is to be understood. And so if you can just use these three words, tell me more. If you can say to them, tell me more and then stop talking. I remember when I was doing my clinical training, one of my supervisors said, you have two ears and one mouth. There's a reason for that ratio. And I think as parents of teens, it's a really good thing to remember that ratio. And if you can just let them talk and don't try to solve it for them, don't try to fix it for them, don't try to give them advice unless they specifically ask for it, but just hear them. And when they feel understood, they will feel such relief. Oh, I'm not alone. Somebody understands me. Someone can sit with me in my discomfort. I've heard you say that advice before and I try it and it is so effective and so hard because so much of my life as a parent has been in the mess of fixing it. And now all of a sudden, like the thoughts that I've really cultivated of how to help are like, needing to be suppressed a little bit. So it's hard. It is hard, but I think we have to remember that teenagers are really knowledgeable about themselves if you give them the space to be. And so yes, do they make some decisions you know, that, that are unfortunate? Of course, but also they know a lot about themselves. And I think it's presumptuous of us to assume that we know better how they should deal with their feelings than they do. And we wanna give them practice of how do I deal with an uncomfortable feeling? Because they are going to go off to wherever they go after they graduate from high school and wherever they go in their lives and they're gonna have discomfort. And so are they gonna remember, oh, you know what? What I need right now is to connect. What I need right now is to feel understood. What I need right now is to get clear about how I'm feeling and to know that feelings are like weather systems. They blow in, they blow out. It's not gonna be here forever and that I can weather this particular storm. You also said in the book that uncertainty can be the best thing that happens to us. Well, there's never been a better time to test your theory. Do we know this when we're living through it or do we understand it when we look back at it? It's funny because I think humans don't do well with uncertainty, but it's often in times of uncertainty that we grow the most or that the seeds of some growth are planted. And so I think right now, you know, we're so focused on what we don't know is going to happen. And what we do is we futurize or we catastrophize. We start worrying about something that hasn't happened yet and may never happen, right? And I think that it's very useful to help our kids learn to stay in the present. What can you be doing right now to help yourself? What can you be doing right now that would be nourishing as opposed to depleting? 
I think a lot of times with fear, we can help them to say, you know, what are you worried about? And they'll say, well, I'm worried about this, that, or the other thing. And you go to the why, and why are you worried about that? And when you keep drilling down to the why, the why, the why, it usually becomes something different from what they thought they were worried about. And it usually becomes something they can do something about. Like, I need to call a friend right now, or I need more downtime right now, or I need to take a break from my homework right now, or I need to get my homework done right now so I'm not so worried about it. I love that you didn't jump to the things that our kids can do to help themselves because it's consistent with your last answer, which is they are the experts of themselves. I think that what you're suggesting is that the idea is to get them involved in the problem solving and not come and suggest, maybe you should do yoga, maybe you should meditate, like all the things that we think would help them through this time. Right. And you could even ask them if they if they don't go there naturally with the tell me more at a certain point in the conversation, you could say, what do you think would be helpful right now? And they might start with the nothing. It's terrible, right? <laughs> I can say this as a parent of a teenager, by the way. Then you just sit with it and you say, okay, well then let's just sit with it for a little longer and let's see if there's anything. If this, And you might even help them by saying, if a friend were going through this, what do you think would help them? And usually right then is like the aha moment. Oh, well, here's what I think would help them. Mm, that's great. That's really excellent. So in your book, one of your characters is seemingly very unlikable. And you talk about your ability to find the humanity in every patient and every person. So adolescents can test that for us as parents. Is there a trick to doing that? Is, is it just how you were born to see the positive in people? Yeah, no, I was definitely not born that way. I don't think any of us is born that way. And, you know, I think, and maybe you should talk to someone, the person you're talking about is a patient named John, and he's very abrasive and unlikable in the beginning. And people say, well, why did you even take him into your practice? And the reason is because, and this is how it applies to teens, that people's behavior often communicates something that maybe they don't have the words for, maybe they can't articulate. And you see that a lot with teenagers. You see that a lot like when kids are really young, like toddlers, you know, before they're like verbal enough to articulate. And then you see it again in the teen years where they don't really know these experiences, the feelings feel very big to them and they don't have a lot of experience with them yet. And so they don't know how to articulate what they're experiencing. And so it comes out in behavior. It comes out in a short temperedness. It comes out in difficulty sleeping. It comes out in behavioral things that go on with their friends or with you or in what's happening in their performance in school, for example. Right. So it comes out in all different ways. A change in behavior like they didn't used to be this way, but now they're this way. Right. And so the question is sort of, what are they trying to tell me through this behavior? And that's what you want to get to. So what parents do is they often respond to the behavior like, well, no tech time for, you know, 24 hours or a week because of what you just did, right? Um, I'm going to take away your phone. We respond to the behavior instead of the message underlying the behavior. And if we can get to the message, it's kind of like the music under the lyrics. The lyrics are what they're doing or saying, right? The music is what is the underlying struggle that they're going through. If we can get to the music, we will be much more effective in helping them. That's a good one. Is that now that you have a teenager, do you have more empathy for parents when they come and tell you how hard that is for them? You know, I think I always had empathy because I think just being a parent is really hard all the time. And it's also, there are so many great things about it, which is why we do it. But I think that anybody who says, oh no, parenting is a breeze. I just, I don't know what planet they live on. Even if you have like a really easygoing kid, it just, it's challenging. I think I always have empathy for parents. Um, But I also think that I have so much hope for parents because I feel like if we knew what to do in a different way, 
it would be a lot easier. And so that's what I'm trying to communicate to people through the book and through all the other things through my podcast or my column. I'm really trying to help people to understand themselves better and to help them to understand what their kids are going through better. So you talk about rejecting complainers. Can you first tell us what you mean by that? Yes. Okay, (laughs) let's see what you mean by that. Okay, so they're called help-rejecting complainers. And I think as we're talking about teens, this is very apt. Help-rejecting complainers are those people who they come to you and they complain all the time. And when you try to offer them help, they reject it. So they'll say like, here's what's going on. And you say, well, why don't you try this? And they'll be like, oh, I can't do that because, and you know, here's this other thing that's happening. And you'll say, well, here's an idea. No, I can't do that. That'll never work, right? So they want your help, but they reject your help. And I think that happens so often with teenagers. So again, what I want to say about that is, Ask them what they want when they're coming to you at the beginning of the conversation. You say, are you coming to me because you just want to vent and I'm here for you? Are you coming to me because you just want to hear yourself think? Are you coming to me because you want to hug? Are you coming to me because you feel alone in this? Are you coming to me because you want to brainstorm ideas? Are you coming to me because you want to hear my honest opinion? And then let them tell you what they want out of that conversation. And also remember that just because this time they're saying, I just want to vent right now and you're dying because you're like, I really want to give them this advice and you can't. Remember that there will be another conversation about that same thing where they might come back to you the next day and say, okay, yesterday I just wanted to vent, but today I actually want to hear what you think about this. So I had a few help rejecting complainers and I got such a pit in my stomach when they would come in and I knew it was a setup but I didn't have the tools to say, what do you want from me at the moment? And it never, ever ended well. Right. And, the, and I think the way to phrase the question is, how can I be helpful to you right now? I want to help you. I'm here with you. How can I be helpful? And you give them some of those options. Do you want to just vent? Do you want me to brainstorm ideas with you? Do you want to know what I really think? What will be most helpful today, right now, in this moment? It seems scripted. Do you feel like kids respond to it when parents do approach it that way? Well, I don't think it's scripted when it's genuine because you're literally genuinely asking them, you want to help. You know, how can I be helpful to you right now? Isn't that isn't that a genuine question? Because that's what you're trying to do. You're sitting with them and you want to be helpful to your teenager. Do you think they know the answer? I think nobody asks them enough and they want to be asked that question. Nobody says, what do you need? What do you want? And what a great tool for life for them to be able to have practice reflecting on, oh yeah, what do I need right now? What would be helpful right now? As opposed to just focusing on what's not working or whatever the complaint is. Just as an aside, I think all of us, I mean, I think if my husband said that to me, I'd be like, oh, what do I need? (laughs) I use this with couples all the time. I see so many couples in my practice and I say to them, you know, they're always saying, well, you don't listen to me. And I say, well, first of all, do you listen to the other person, (laughs) right? But secondly, do you know what they want? Do you know how to listen? And so the question is, there are lots of ways to listen. Ask them how they want to be heard right now. In your book, you talk about how we are unreliable narrators of our own lives. Our kids are telling us stories all the time that we perceive as lies, but maybe none of us are reliable narrators, and maybe that's what's going on there. Yeah, so what I mean by unreliable narrators is that we are telling 
all of us do this. We tell our stories through our own particular lens. And so we're emphasizing certain aspects of the story and minimizing other aspects. We're leaving entire aspects out of the story. We're making ourselves the, the victim maybe, and or maybe we're making ourselves the hero. Who knows what we're doing? But the point is that we're telling a story in a particular way because we want someone to validate our version of the story. So it's not unique to teens, but I think if we can recognize that that's human nature, that when your teen tells you a story and you're kind of like, hmm, I think there's probably more to this story or there's probably something that they're not, you know, there's a, probably an aspect of this story that they're not sharing with me. Instead of thinking of it as they're lying, think of it as they're telling the story in a way that is palatable to them and that if you can let them have the space, if you give them a lot of compassion and understanding, they will give you the rest of the story. So if you can ask questions from a place of compassion, like, oh, yeah, I can understand why you felt that way, or, you know, really let them feel heard. Yeah, that must have been really hard so that they don't feel shame, because once teenagers feel shame or they feel like they're going to get in trouble, they're not going to tell you the rest of the story. So if you can say, yeah, that's really hard or, you know, without judging it, without like then going, and why would you do that? You know, and you know, what kind of decision was that? What were you thinking? Don't I say might have that done to that a few times in my life. <laughs> right, right. We know that because we think in our head, like, what were you thinking? Really? You did that? Um, but just be like, oh, yeah. OK, so tell me more about that. Oh, OK. And then tell me about like why you decided to do that. What were you thinking there? Not like what were you thinking, but like, how did you come to that decision? OK. And now how do you think about it? And then now what do you think would be a good approach to this? It's just so much compassion and more compassion. <laughs> but, but do you remember what it's like to be a teen? I think if you can remember how hard it was and just how hard life is in general, it's hard. And don't you want, when you're telling someone something that maybe you're not so proud of, don't you want them to say, I still love you. Like, I understand. Maybe you made a, a choice there that you wouldn't make again, but I understand. And now let's see where we are here and let's see about what choices you can make now. Isn't that what we all want? Absolutely. Okay, so we are doing something for the first time. We invited people who love you and your book to ask questions. So we are going to start with Hannah Leach. Hi, that's me. Um, Hi, Hannah. So love your book. Thank you for all the work that you do. My question is that if you as a patient are feeling like your therapist is disclosing too much of their own personal information with you, how do you address that? And is it a sign that you should just move on to a new therapist? Yeah. So I think, you know, how much a therapist disclosed, and I write about this, and maybe you should talk to someone, it really depends on, you know, is this going to help the person? So for example, there was a therapist, a colleague that I know, her son has Tourette's and she was seeing a patient whose son has Tourette's. And at some point she disclosed that her son had Tourette's because this parent felt so alone in the experience. This parent felt like no one gets it. And so just knowing that she didn't talk about her son, she didn't talk about the details. She just simply said, I have experience with this because my son has Tourette's. And she didn't ever really talk about, you know, what her own experience was. But just knowing that helped the patient feel like somebody gets this. So if you're if your therapist though is disclosing things where you feel like, huh, I'm not really sure why that's relevant, right? I don't really, you know, that that's something that I don't really want to know. Bring it up with your therapist because something's gone wrong there. And it's really important that you don't just leave, but that you have an, a conversation and you say, you know, you've told me this, that, and the other thing. I'm not sure why you're telling me this. It actually makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Can we talk about that? Your therapist will welcome that conversation. Thank you. 
Okay, first of all, that's so scary, the thought of actually doing it. I know. (laughs) But I think that every time you have hard conversations in life, that they translate to other areas of your life. If you want to be a good parent, you've got to learn how to have hard conversations. And so practice in every aspect of your life. If you want to, you know, just in, in your relationships, right, all of your adult relationships with your partner, with your family members, with your friends, with your siblings, with your parents, having those hard conversations almost always yield something positive. Okay, the next person is Jessica Semmel. She she pushed me and pushed me and pushed me to read your book. And so ah, she has, Well, thank you, Jessica. <laughs> so we, we thank Jessica for this relationship. And here's her question. Hi, Lori. I'm kind of fangirling. So excited to ask you a question. I have to just tell you that a year ago, my father was pushing this book on me. He's 85. He loved your book so much. He couldn't wait for me to read it. And he even sent it to my daughter, who is a therapist in New York. And I finally read it from the library and loved it and told my daughter, I called her and I said, I know you don't want to hear this, but your grandfather's right. You have to read the book. So we love you and we love your book. My question is, um, what does a client look for in a therapist? That, that is to say, you meet with someone, you're not sure if it's the right fit or not. What is it that we should be feeling or looking for? And as a follow-up, since this is obviously a conversation about parenting teens, um, what do we look for in a therapist for our adolescent child especially if we're not in the room with them when they're meeting with the therapist. So I'd love to hear your insights, and I'm just so excited to be kind of talking to you, even if it's virtual. That's such a good question, because I think that people think that they go in for a first session with a therapist, and they're going to be one of two outcomes. Either you're going to be in therapy with that person, or you're not going to go to therapy. And that is not what it is. The first session is a consultation. And it's really an opportunity for you to see, how do I feel in the room with this person? Did I feel understood? Do I feel like this person gets me in whatever way a person can get you in the span of a first meeting? Did the person ask me questions that I felt were challenging in a good way? meaning the person isn't just kind of a highing you, but that the person is going to help you to grow and help you to see things that maybe you haven't been able to see yet or been willing to see yet. So how did you feel at the end? And if you felt like, yeah, I, I that felt good. I want to continue. Go back for a second session. It doesn't mean you're in therapy with that person yet. You're going to have to go back for a few sessions before you say, yeah, I feel really comfortable and I want to continue doing this. And you evaluate that along the way too, right? So just like the earlier question about my therapist is disclosing too much, that's a question about, wait a minute, this doesn't feel right. Let's talk about that and let's see if this is the right relationship. So it's really important that people find the right match because study after study shows that the most important factor in the success of someone's therapy is the relationship with the therapist. It matters more than the therapist's training, modality they use, number of years of experience. All of that matters, of course, but what matters most is the nature of that relationship. Okay, next one, Monica Arkin. Hi, Lori. My name is Monica. I am a doctoral student in clinical psychology, and I loved reading your book. And my question for you is, in the times of COVID, what are you doing for self-care? Yeah. So I think self-care has almost become a buzzword where people think it's something like kind of fuzzy and they don't really even know what it means. I think it has to be really concrete. So self-care is, you know, just the basics. Am I getting enough sleep? 
Do I go to bed at the normal time? Do I wake up at the normal time? What is the quality of my sleep? Am I eating my meals? Am I eating healthy meals? Am I eating at the normal times? Um, as opposed to it's three o'clock and I haven't had lunch. Whoa, what happened? That's not self-care. Am I getting outside? Am I just able to take a walk around the block even for five minutes? When I wake up in the morning is the first thing that I do. Do I go to my phone and I get like a hundred messages from people saying what they need from me that day? Or do I take five minutes and say, you know, what am I grateful for that happened yesterday? Or do I take five minutes to connect with my child or to, to connect with my partner, right? So it's these little things that really add up and change the quality of our days. Alexa Scheiman, she is a 17-year-old senior who has decided she wants to be a psychologist because of you. Hi, my name is Alexa. I loved your book and it really encouraged me to want to study psychology. One question I have is what inspired you to become a psychologist? I took the most nonlinear path ever to becoming a therapist. And you can read all about it in the book, but the very short version is that I was always interested in story and the human condition. And so I started working in film and later network television because I was fascinated by stories that really delved into the human condition. I ended up working on a show called ER, where I was working in a real ER, um, shadowing a physician that got me interested in medicine. I went to medical school. I ended up leaving medical school to become a journalist where I felt like I could really tell people stories. And then I decided that I really wanted to help people to change their stories. And I switched over to therapy, although I do all of those things. I still write. I still, you know, I, I see clients. And so I think that for me, it was really about I'm fascinated by people and I'm fascinated by story. And this was a way to really affect change in the world in a way that felt really purposeful to me. Sharon Holbrook. Hi, Lori. I loved your book. My question for you is about taking kids to therapy. I know that it can be helpful to tell kids who are having a hard time that their struggles are normal, that it's typical for their age, that they're going to be fine. We have confidence in them coming out on the other side of whatever they're dealing with positively. So how do we present the idea of therapy to our kids without telling them there's something wrong with you, I think you're broken, especially if the kid says, oh, I'm fine. I'd love your advice on that. Thank you. Yeah, so so often what happens is when there's a problem, there's a problem going on maybe with the kid, but that affects what goes on with the rest of the family too. And what goes on with the rest of the family affects the kid. And so often what happens is the kid is clearly, you know, you see the behaviors. And so you say, okay, you need to go to therapy. And what that does is it pathologizes the kid and it makes the kid feel like they are the problem. And so I think a better way to approach it is to say, um, you know, it depends what's going on with them. But if they're, if you see something very concrete, like, you know, I see you're sad a lot, or I see that you're really worried a lot, or I see that there's struggles going on in our family, and maybe we should maybe we should all go talk to somebody. It depends what's going on, whether it's something like they're experiencing depression or anxiety, or there's something going on in the family. But I think the main thing to remember is to say, I see something going on with you, and I don't want to see you struggle so much. And maybe it would help to go talk to somebody, let's just see how it goes. Let's see if that's helpful. And I'll go with you, or if you wanna have a 
place to talk to somebody by yourself because sometimes people don't want to talk around their parents. But I don't want to see you struggle so much. That's very beautiful. So every guest that we interview, we ask this last question. What's the biggest myth about raising teenagers? I think the biggest myth is that teenagers are like, you know, that the people are so afraid of the teen years. You know, people are always like, oh my God, teenagers. Or if someone says like, how old's your son? And I say he's 14. They're like, put on your seatbelt, you know. <laughs> and, um, and I think the thing is, what happens is we lose the beauty of the teen years. So yes, you know, there's a lot of change that goes on during the teen years, and often the teen years can be a little bit tumultuous, but not always. And I think if we handle it well, and we teach our teens to handle it well, that they're actually a really beautiful time in a person's life. And I think the other thing to remember is sometimes it's hard when things are challenging with our teens to see their good qualities, to see the things, you know, all of the things that we love about our kids, those are still there. You might have to look a little harder for them sometimes, but they're still there. And so if you can remember like, yeah, this moment is really challenging and you are just like at a 10 in your level of frustration, take a breath for a minute. And I want you to remember the things that you love about this child that are separate from this moment. And it will help you so much get through those moments. Lori Gottlieb, author of New York Times bestseller, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for the conversation. Thanks for joining us for Your Teen with Sue and Steph. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. Also, if you want to receive our newsletter, head on over to yourteenmag.com. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. If you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review or send the episode to a friend. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.